Hello everyone and welcome once again to Ultimate Motorcycling's weekly podcast, Motos and Friends. My name is Arthur Coldwells. Have you seen the Sport Heritage range of Yamahas? They are the classically styled performance motorcycles taking the US by storm. I've been riding the gorgeous looking Yamaha XSR 900 and its great looks are more than backed up by its phenomenal performance. I am really truly impressed. Visit YamahaMotorsports.com to find out more about the exciting Heritage line or go check it out for yourself at your local dealer today. It is safe to say that editor Don Williams is a dirt bike nut. He rode competitive trials for over 30 years and he and his wife ride every weekend and sometimes more on every type of off-road machine they can lay their hands on. Interestingly, he's never had the chance to ride a Grand National cross-country off-road race course. But recently, he finally had the chance to do so. As a guest of KTM, Don was able to sample the range of KTM cross-country XC models. And in this first segment, he tells us all about the differences he found, as well as the thrill of riding a full GNCC course for the first time. In our second segment, TJ Adams chats with a couple of adventure-seeking Aussies. Stu and Janelle and their three dogs have been riding all over the world for the last 10 years and 108 countries visited aboard their two BMW 650 GS Adventure motorcycles. Calling themselves the Pack Track, their adventures are chronicled on their blog, TJ gets the lowdown on some of their experiences, good and bad, and the challenge of crossing borders with canines along for the ride. Actually, they will be touring the USA from June to October of this year, starting in Sacramento, California, before they make their way across the northeast part of the US and then finishing back in Dallas, Texas, where they first started. On the tour, they will be giving free presentations at a number of motorcycle dealerships. So check out their schedule and hopefully you can get along to meet them in person. So, from everyone here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoy this episode. The Yamaha name stands for a heritage of motorcycle performance and classic styling. Visit your local dealer to find the 2023 Yamaha Sport Heritage bike for you. Like the Yamaha Bold R-Spec that features a torquey V-twin engine combining old-school soul and modern form. Or the XSR 900, where timeless design meets the sheer power of a CP3 power plant and is the rebirth of a legend. The XSR 700 is built to be customized with modern classic looks and cross-plane concept twin performance. And the light and nimble V-Star 250 is built for fun with a V-twin engine and a low seat height for easy handling. For all things Yamaha Sport Heritage, visit yamahamotorsports.com or see the Bolt R-Spec XSR 900, XSR 700 or the V-Star 250 at your local dealer today. I actually rode four new KTMs, and uh, it was out at the John Penton GNCC course in Millville, Millfield, Ohio, and uh, it's kind of a childhood dream of mine uh, growing up in Southern California 
I always wondered what it was like to ride the GNCC courses back east. You know, I rode the desert here in the mountains and we have single track and we have forest. But when I saw the pictures of what it was like in the Midwest and the East, I was definitely was different from what we do here. And uh, I've never had the opportunity to go that far East and ride dirt bikes. So uh, when KTM was coming out with a new uh, XCFW and XCW uh, off-road bikes, I was pretty excited to hear where it was gonna be, which was like I said, the John Penton uh, GNCC course. And what's pretty cool about that, uh, for the people who don't know the history of KTM in the United States, certainly, you know, KTM was a builder of motorcycles in Austria and John Penton, an American uh, in Ohio, he wanted to build, have motorcycles built for the American market, dirt bikes. And he was a dirt bike guy, and this is in the late 60s. And so John Penton approached KTM and said, here's what I want you to build. Can you build it for me? And so they said, we can build it for you. And they built these uh, Penton motorcycles that were, you know, from KTM. And they were great motorcycles, uh, top of the line for enduro riders, because that's what they did. His sons were uh, national enduro riders, and he was an enduro rider himself. And uh, those bikes were as good as anything you could buy at the time in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, and then by 78, KTM kind of said, you know what? I think we're just going to sell the bikes under our name in the United States. So that was the end of the Penton brand, which, you know, it had a good run 10 years and it was the introduction for Americans to the KTM brand. And so it's been KTM since then. So obviously what I rode was quite different from what they had in the 1960s and, and 1970s. And uh, this year they did a complete redo of the XCW and XCFW line. And uh, the F, that just tells you it's a four-stroke. Uh, this has been kind of a checkered past line for the what I'll just call the XCWs. Uh, it's the W is for a wide ratio transmission, so it gives you a, you know something that's good in in Southern California because we have the desert, so you have these tight technical portions of the desert. People think the desert is wide open or it's the sand dunes like you know Lords of Arabia, but the desert is has a lot of rocky mountains and and really tough trails, but it also has wide open. Uh, dry lake beds where you can go as fast as you want and uh, so a wide ratio transmission is great uh, the, the KTM XCW bikes have had they, they've kind of marketed them in different ways they're not really the hardest core of the race bikes they're more of a like a, a casual competitor's bike and then a, a great trail bike and for a while they were green sticker legal in the in California uh, which you need a green sticker if you want to ride all year round in California. And then they changed all the rules. And so they quit, KTM quit making the bike uh, off-road legal in California. And they didn't want to get involved in that, which is fine. And so uh, that's where we're at now is the bikes don't have any emission stuff on them. They're, they don't have a spark arrestor. They're in uh, supposedly, you know, kind of a closed course motorcycle race bike but it's not like the hardest core of the race bike. It's, a, it's kind of a different, different way of going about it. So, okay. so and that's perfect for me because I'm, you know, I'm not a championship racer, uh, but I go pretty good. And I like to go you know, ride on single track here in California. So I finally got to go ride the single track in, in Ohio. And, and yes, it was different before I get to the bikes. The trees are a lot closer to the trail. There's a lot more of the trees. <laughs> 
and the ground is generally damper. So when you uh, add all those together, it's it's a different experience. There were rocks and more roots than I'm used to seeing. And uh, another part of the test track that we had was a grass track. And that's another huge treat for somebody from Southern California. We never get to ride on a grass track. And again, growing up, you saw, uh, I saw grass track, uh, motocross tracks in even the United States and like Unadilla motocross uh was had a grass track initially in Europe they had a lot of them that's pretty much gone now all the tracks are groomed courses now but uh, for GNC races a lot of times they will have a grass track start and so what it is is basically they have a big field of grass and then they mark out a course with a bunch of turns and ups and downs and and that's what this had and it was it was really cool and what it does is it gives you the opportunity to test the bike in completely different situations. Grass track is pretty smooth. It's pretty fast. Uh, the traction is different because it's the kind of loosey loamy stuff. And then you would dart into the, uh, the forest and in the woods and uh, it was kind of muddy and mucky and there's roots going, especially the diagonal ones across the trail and there'd be logs and there were rocks and there were up steep uphills and steep downhills. Yikes. So you had, so you had, no, no, that's great. <laughs> okay. So you have all these, you know, very technical, much lower speed, uh, uh, riding conditions compared to the really fast grass track, which was super fast. You, you know, super fun. You're doing big long wheelies, if you want. You know, you could, you know, but basically, the, the opportunity to test these three bikes was really great because it was the perfect situation and which is why ktm brought you know a bunch of journalists out to do it there and so uh it was uh the three bikes or the four bikes that i'd had there's a there was a four stroke 450 which is kind of the the king kong of the bikes it's the most powerful it's the fastest it's the most racer oriented and then they had three two strokes a 150 a 250 and a 300 and a lot of people might think, well, you need a 150, a 250, and a 300. Let me just kind of address those bikes first uh, because they're quite different. Even though all four of the bikes run the same frame, uh, the suspension is set up differently for each of, each of the bikes because the power's delivery is different and the bikes, they, they weigh slightly different. They're not hugely different in weight, but just the way the power is delivered and the way you would ride it is, is quite different. So the, you know, the, the 150 two-stroke has the softest suspension and the 450 four-stroke, the big, the beast has the firmest suspension. So the first thing I did was I decided I'd grab the three two-strokes and see how they compare. Again, you have a 150, a 250, and a 300. And as people who are familiar with off-road bikes, they are completely different bikes. I mean, it's just a gigantically different experience. On the 150, the smallest engine, uh, you know, you're revving it high. So you're, you're, you're maybe in the gear lower, but you're really, really getting hitting the revs, hitting the revs, hitting the revs, always super aggressive because you can be. It's, it's only 150 cc's. You're not overwhelmed by the bike. The bike feels really light, super maneuverable. You know, there's not a lot of reciprocating mass, flip, you know, spinning around. So it's easy to change direction. That softer suspension just feels so good with the light weight. It's just super easy to ride. And uh, the funny thing was, is as I switched between them, I always, oh, I like this. Oh, I like this. Oh, I like this. And this is kind of standard for me. 
it's it's <laughs> yeah. I, I really yeah. do appreciate like each different approach and I, i'm not somebody who's wedded to what has to be like this and if it's not like this and i don't like it you know it's like oh it does it this yeah. oh this is great so the, the 150 again is all about spinning it up and uh and just holding on and using the fact that it's light and easy to maneuver and to maneuver is that's your advantage that you have on that bike uh even though it's right. a little 152 stroke though it still has good torque uh this year ktm added an electronic power valve to the exhaust ports so instead of it just being something where it works on the centrifugal force of the engine to kind of just mechanically raise the ports and, and adjust the, the the power output it's now electronically controlled so it's it can give you more of a curve that you want and uh the bike has two power modes uh the more aggressive and a, a softer one and in the case of the 150 i was pretty happy with the more aggressive one uh the softer one if you're really you know if you're a new rider it'd be you know, a new off-road rider actually be pretty cool you put that in that soft mode kind of get your feet wet get used to what you're doing you go out and uh after a while you can say hey i think i'll try that high power mode and do that and the bike revs a lot faster revs a lot higher more willingly and so you can go pretty good and out on the grass tracks it does feel a little underpowered sometimes you know you can truly hit full full throttle and say eh, it'd be a little bit more would be pretty cool but still you know as everybody knows riding those small engine hard is always super fun and so you can really get on the bike on the on the oh. gas and spin up the rear wheel and go flying down the you know flying down the grass track to the next corner turn it hard square it off get on the gas boom shoot down to the next one so the 150 <laughs> is pretty cool okay now back now to go to the next one you'd think i'd go to the 250 but actually i'm going to go to the 300 because it's kind of the exact opposite even though it has the exact same chassis the bike feels completely different to ride the 300 motor is much slower revving but much torquier more muscly but not muscly in a bad way just like no matter how low the rpm go whatever the situation you just roll on that throttle and it has power uh now in this on the 300 the difference between the soft power and the and the uh the high power is pretty different uh you know you can really you can get yourself into, into trouble pretty quick on the 300 in the the high power mode it, it really really hauls and so but on the grass track ah oh, it's so great you know you get on that this back wheel spinning you're flying you know you just kind of lean back a little get the front end light dig in big roost go flying down and so in the open terrain where you can use that wide ratio transmission the the, the high power mode for the 300 is just just perfect it's just super fast super fun but still even though because if they slow down the res it's it's not ever uncontrollable it's not it doesn't spin up super fast so that you're like whoa what happened what's going on hold on you know it's just put getting traction going and flying and it's awesome so then when you get in the woods i would always pop it down into the low power mode which is more torquey mode and then it would just not have to shift very often you know you just go you know flying through the woods you know it was a little bit hard definitely harder to turn than the 150 you know there's there's more momentum wanting to go forward from the engine the gyroscopic effect so turning the bike was a little tougher and you know there's there's a bit more fatigue in having the additional power delivered but but it's okay and 
uh, for a lot of people that don't want to rev the bike and always feel like they're, you know, they just want to torque it through and, and not have to be as aggressive. The 300 is, is just so wonderful because it just, it, it's so forgiving. It's like, oh, you're not high enough for it. Your revs are too high, whatever. I can handle it. Just dial on the throttle to whatever you want and, and I'll make it work. And so the engine is so sweet and the suspension, again, a little stiffer on that because the bike just has a little bit more, it doesn't weigh much more. It's just a couple pounds, a few pounds, but it's just more substantial, you know, feeling because of that, the, this bigger crank spinning. And so in tra the transmission gear, all the, the bottom end is completely different. So you, you feel that little bit heavier suspension or, or firmer suspension, and it just feels just right for that bike. And it really reminds you that, you know, the guys at KTM, they have all these zillion models, but they've really put a lot of work into setting up the suspension on these bikes because it'd be easy for them to say, well, we have one set suspension set up for these three, you sort it out, but they're different and it makes a difference. And uh, when we were setting the SAG for the bike, you know, SAG's really important on off-road bikes. It has a lot to do with how well the bike will steer. I'm kind of the right weight because they just got, I got on it. Like, oh, it's already perfect. So everything about the suspension on these bikes is set up for me. It's like they saw me coming, you know, and they, everybody else, they're like, got the wrenches out. They're pounding on things. Me, they just go, oh, yes, you go, go ahead. You're fine. So <laughs> it's, it, it's nice to have that, that, you know, if you're, you're like 160, you're going to feel that the bikes are made for you. And even though the 150cc bike version, you know, the XCW was, uh softer suspension it didn't matter because of the light feel of the bike it that all fit together so even though i was moving between these different suspension setups they were still every time it was right for me now the last one to go to is is the 250 now if somebody wants to race a, you know a two-stroke xcw or X, xcw right they have to the 250 is a good choice because it has that kind of revability of the 150 but the power of a 250, not quite as much as the 300, but a lot, lot more power. It has a lot more in common. The 250 has more in common with the, the, even though it shares the same basic motor as the 300, riding it, it, it has more in common with the 150, where it's more of a revy thing. Uh, you know, you can, it, it really goes fast. If you get in the woods, you know, and I put it in the high power mode, I was, it was a hang on, let's go kind of thing, where the bike was motoring through the woods it has a lighter feel than the 300 because it has the smaller crank the lighter crank and so you can maneuver it making the turns and it just feels lighter on its feet nothing like the 150 which really feels light but still much lighter than the 300 and also it feels lighter because it revs quicker and so it always has that kind of snappy floaty feel and you can, you can also ride it in the lower power mode and in certain parts of the off you know, in the, in the woods, in the low power mode, it actually would, uh, I could go a little faster because I was less intimidated by the power when it was super tight and it was just easier to dial in. And now they have a button on the left to swap the uh, power modes. And yeah, you can do it on the fly, but the button is hard to push. It's, there's no like tactile feel. You, you don't like, it's not like a button where it goes click, click in. It's just like you kind of, you know how sometimes you have buttons where you just push them, but they don't feel like they're doing anything. Yeah. They change. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, this is like that. And so you have to really push it hard. And yeah, you know, sometimes I get it. Most of the time I get it, but not always, but 
there's a light, there's a light, there's a green light when it's fast, a white light when it's slow. Uh, in in the in the sunlight, you can't even see them, but in the in the in the woods, you can. But anyway, so switching between them is not as easy as I would have liked, but but it, it you can. So now and you, can, and you can feel the difference, presumably. I mean, it's, oh, yeah, it's a huge problem. difference, but it's yeah. kind of like you hit the button. And then you go to get on the gas. And if you're like trying to go fast, you kind of want to know which one you're in. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's true. Yeah. Because if you're in the if you're if you thought you if you were in the fast one and you thought you popped it down to the low power mode and you get on the gas, you're gonna go, whoa, <laughs> that's right. not what I expected. Right. It's kind of not as big a problem the other way. But if you if you thought you were dropping down to the low power mode and you you weren't then it would be like oh yeah this is this is not great yeah yeah so uh and that did happen to me a couple times so i was much more deliberate about it you know i kind of had spots on the course where i'd go okay here's where i switch and then maybe you just let i mean it wasn't racing so okay bang i i get it make sure it's in so but i'm sure you can buy another switch although the switch is has electronics in it so it might be a little trickier than that but anyway oh i forgot and I'll just bring that up now. The switch is optional. This is one of these things. What? The switch is like around 150 bucks. They don't they don't know yet. I even called a dealer and they don't have it in their stock in the stock yet. But the the power switch is optional. If you buy the bike without the power switch, it's in the the white mode, the low power mode all the time. So basically you have to buy that switch if you want the high power mode. Can you add, can you add this as an aftermarket accessory if you want to after you've bought the bike? Uh, well, you could buy uh, KTM sells it. Uh, oh, okay, all right. Yeah. <laughs> so, if you, so if you've bought the bike without the switch, or you buy a used bike without the switch, and then you decide you do want the switch, you can you can get it and just plug it in. Yeah, yeah. The dealer will sell you one for about one hundred and fifty bucks. That would seem to okay. be the kind of guess guesstimate. So. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I. It's funny. I forgot that. It's so essential to the motorcycle, and it's one of those things where you kind of go, "Man, come on, guys!" You know, yeah, the motorcycle's, you know, nine thousand dollars, and you're gonna ding somebody for one hundred fifty for an extra power mode. It's like okay, so. But I suppose if you were a super casual rider and you always rode in the tight woods all the time, you'd say, "Hey, you know what? I don't need the power. I don't need the high power mode." I'm happy with the low power mode and it'll be fine. And someday if you decided otherwise, you could do something about it. So you can save 150 bucks, but 150 seems kind of nickel dimey for a motorcycle of that cost. I suppose. Yeah, it does a bit, you know, for it's, 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 you know, and actually I had a, a discussion with one of the KTM engineers about that. And I wrote a column a few months ago, uh, Nick and I, Nick DeSena, the uh, senior editor here, about whether you should charge extra for extra power modes. And KTM does that on a lot of the bikes, uh, pretty much all of them. I think about it, like the adventure bikes, if you want like the Enduro Pro on the adventure bikes, which is really important to have if you go off road, that's a different package. And I'm pretty sure the Super Duke R, there's like the track mode and you pay extra for that. And so, you know, that's kind of a way KTM does it. Uh, they're not the only ones. BMW does it. Ducati does it. They all have optional power modes. So, and 
he didn't want it. He kind of sheepishly admitted it, but the, you know, of course, the, the power modes are in there. You know, it's in the ignition. You're just they're just selling you access to it. It's not like the the button has the extra power mode in it. It just right. lets you access it. But anyway, but in I this in this case, it does seem a little odd that for a like you say a nearly ten thousand dollar motorcycle, somebody's going to try and save one hundred and fifty bucks on a switch. I mean, why not just? Right, I I, I, like you say, I, it seems a bit you. nickel and dimey. I can, you know, I can understand if you're buying a Tesla and you save yourself fifteen thousand dollars on not getting the, you know, the FSD. But for this, for one hundred fifty bucks, it just seems like just a false economy. But, but yeah, again, if somebody was a new rider and they rode on trails, let's say they have trails around them that are super tight, you know, they'd probably be fine without the high power mode. But right. most, the vast majority of people will will spring for that <laughs> option. I would, I would think so. Yeah. So that's been in, you know. Oh, I the two, I didn't mention the two fifty on the grass track, and yeah, it's like the others. You want to be in the high power mode, and it's super fun. Uh, if you're in the low power mode, it's still fun, but not as much fun as you know roosting big time and going over the jumps, and and it's it's cool. So the the fourth bike, and this is the again the kind of the flagship it's the 454 stroke and it's 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 a beast it's a beast uh it was super fun on the fast track <laughs> oh, oh and also this is kind of it also has its own button but the button you get for that actually does more than just change power modes it also gives you the ability it has the four stroke has traction control and a quick shifter and so now you wow. can say okay, okay. for a and I think it's a little bit more because it's a different button because it has the two buttons, the, you know, it's these little buttons for the quick shifter and the uh, traction control, which again, you can hit them, but they're awkward, you know, to do when you're riding. I mean, you can do it, but it's not like intuitive where you just like, like, you know, if anybody watches MotoGP, they see the big array of buttons that the rider has to change right. modes. It's not like that. It's like this little tiny button that you kind of have to move your thumb around and push up you know and and when you're off road especially that's that's a lot harder right so anyway it has uh traction control which is a relatively new feature off road and quick shifter again a relatively new feature and uh, the quick shifter is an unusual one in that it only works from second to sixth and only upshifts so oh okay uh, you have to use the clutch between first and second and again, it's a single cylinder, and, and as you know, we've talked about before on quick shifters, the more cylinders, the better, the, the, the smoother it works. And this is a you know a big thumper, so whatever it was, they couldn't make it. I'm sure they couldn't make it smooth enough to feel like they were properly uh, protecting the transmission and making it still shift quick enough between first and second to make it part of the quick shift package. But again, I'll go to the grass track, man. When you're on that grass track and you have that quick shifter that is super fun <laughs> you're just like ding, 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 ding. and i hear some of the my colleagues ride and they you know they weren't quite used to quick shifters so they weren't sure what you know that they could do that you'd hear them let off the gas themselves because that's what they'd be used to doing to, to do a clutchless shift you know just kind of interrupting the power whereas i'm just wide open at tick, 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 and it's great and the quick shifter as often as the case with quick shifters the harder you ride the better they they work so, Absolutely. Yeah. so on the grass track, and this is and you know, so you also have the high power mode, which you have to hold on the 450 in the high power mode. You're you're talking serious 50 horsepower bike, 
and uh so you gotta you gotta be ready to go and so it goes pretty good now this is where it gets a little complicated they also have the traction control and the traction control pads the power down so you end up having four power modes basically you have the the low power mode with traction control without and the high power mode with without traction now you got on the on the grass track without the traction control and in the high power mode you're like getting the full experience and you get the big roost and you're, you know, you're turning with the rear wheel in the corners and it's fun. It, I, you know, we didn't have a timer, you know, any kind of thing like that. So it's hard. It was hard for me to tell if I was going faster with the traction control in the, in the green high power mode, or if I just thought I was because it was spinning up so much and going, making a lot of noise and going fast or spinning up fast. But you could tell that, you know, you weren't getting hundred percent traction. So in the uh, traction control mode, you still have plenty of wheel spin. It's not like, you know, it's constantly going, ta, ta, ta. It's, it's very liberal with the, with the amount of wheel spin it allows. But it's definitely noticeable when you go into a turn and you get on the gas, instead of the back end spinning up and, the, and coming out and helping you turn, it just hooks up. <laughs> and so, interesting. So, okay. You know, and so it hooks up and it goes, but you're not riding in the normal way it, it, would, it would take me a while to really you know i'd want somebody to time me between you know in these in these little portions to tell me are you going faster this way or am i just feels faster or is the other one just it actually really is slower but it's a different experience than one that a lot of dirt bike almost every dirt bike guy isn't used to which is getting on the gas like that in the corner and instead of spinning up the rear wheel having the bike hook up and, and slingshot you to the next corner and so that's where you really find out that you know the chat how the chassis works on you know and it shares the same chassis as, as the uh, two strokes and even the little 150 so the little 150 has the same chassis as the 450 four stroke and uh but it works it works for all of them and it's it's just one of those things where the way they adjusted the suspension the way they put the motor in the in the frame it all works and so the bike is super easy to ride it's just you know you have to deal with the power but as far as the handling the suspension the turning the ability to you know lift the front wheel over obstacles super easy in all the time so when i went into the woods it was you know again i, I tested in all four different modes the 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 green high power mode and no traction control is wild i mean basically i was like overshooting corners always on the brakes it was just too much for me now if i was a gncc champ i'm sure it's awesome <laughs> you just don't care and you right. can make all those corners and you can jam on those brakes but for me it was it was a bit much and even the even when i put in the traction control that really wasn't my problem uh you know it just actually in some ways it would make it worse because i could go even you know i'd get more of a hookup and go flying into the corners so for me, the high power mode—it's just that's just too much power on a single track in in uh, muddy terrain with ruts and rocks, and so I put it into the low power mode, which is not low power, but it's relatively low power, and the bike was way easier to ride, and I really again felt like I was going faster, even though I had less power because I was I could ride more aggressively and I was making all the corners, and and I could get on the on the gas a little harder. I did like it with traction control on. Again, that's 
pads down to power, but when you're in, in low traction situation, it actually puts more power to the ground, I think. And so it feels like I'm going pretty good. Like whenever I dial on the power instead of the back wheel spinning, which is not really not a good thing in, in mud, you know, on the grass track, it's okay because it gets you up into that high 50 horsepower range where the bike's really revving and then it, it will shoot you down the, the track when you lean back a bit in the muddy, goopy and, and uh, rocky stuff, it, you're just spinning and you're not really going like you would. So the kind of the moral to the story and the firmer suspension works great with the additional weight and the additional uh, rotating mass. So the bike just settles down, always has traction. Uh, you know, you hit when you, I hit, would hit rocks or something there's no jolt through the uh, WP suspension. WP suspension is, you know, it's taken a while for them to get respected to being the, the, the top level stuff. And they right. really have, the suspension on this bike is just fantastic. Uh, they don't have linkage in the rear. And the reason for that is so that rocks and things can't damage it or get hung up on it or logs. So that it, it's, there's a new swing arm uh, and it's just a, direct mount of the shock and in, inside the shock, it has progressive damping. So as you go farther through the stroke, it gets, it gets firmer. So the bike settles in nicely to get traction in the first part of the, uh, the travel. And then is, you, you know, you, you're hitting jumps outside in the grass track or you slam into something really hard in the woods. It then firms up to make sure the bike doesn't bottom out. And uh, the, the fork also has some new, uh, bottoming restrictions at the, at the very end of the stroke where it slows things down extra bits to stop the bike from you know shock the, the fork from you know clanking and it worked I mean I never you know I made a few mistakes and I never had a clank where I've bottomed out the suspension but I did use almost all of it you know I could see on the, you could you know uh -huh. they have a little thing that shows you how much you've used and I, I was using pretty much all of it but not quite you know so it's it was great but, you know, coming away from this is I, I had really not that much experience with the XCWs uh, and they're great. <laughs> they're like they, they made me a new fan right away. Super easy to ride. You know, I always rode I always ride the EXCs and the, you know, the more competitive ones. And this this was often not even available. Like KTM wasn't really pushing this as much. And so it wasn't always in the press fleet. So getting to ride it was like, oh, wow, this bike's great. And I really want to ride it in the desert with that wide ratio transmission where I can really, you know, open it up and see what the bike's like at high speed. Although I'm sure they're all great. I mean, the grass track, I wasn't into sixth. I think fourth, maybe fifth. I can't remember. You know, I'm, I'm shifting so fast, especially on the fourth. Like, but uh, it was super stable, super confidence inspiring. And that's what all these bikes do. They inspire confidence in different ways. Uh, you know, there, there's four different motorcycles and they will appeal to four different mindsets. It's all about the rider being honest with himself and who he is and what he wants and what he's willing to give away for this or that and picking the right bike, you know, and for somebody like me, kind of regular, more of a regular guy, the 150 and the 300 are kind of the two sweet spots, whereas the 250 and the 450 are like the race bikes. So okay. if I was racing, I'd probably, you know, I'd probably get the 250 because the 450 is just more motor than I would ever need. And so I might as well go with a lighter 250 two-stroke. But for just riding around and having a great time, having fun, 
I would be constantly, you know, it would be hard juggle in my head. Like, oh, do I like that torque? Oh, that torquey 300 is so great, but that 150 is so much fun. Bzz, 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 around. <laughs> right. You know, I feel like a hero the whole time. And these bikes are like those hero making bikes where you really feel good riding them. Like you feel like you're riding better than you are. And, <laughs> right. And that's, right. that's all you can ask from a motorcycle really. And, oh. and so it was, it was just, I mean, when you rode the RC 213V, how did you feel? Yeah, it was a better bike than I am. Yeah, it, right. made, it made me feel like anything was was possible. Right. And that's yeah. that's what these bikes do. That's a great way to put it. Like anything's possible. Like I can make that hill. Oh, right. this downhill, no problem. Oh, I can go a little faster than I thought. Or, oh, this corner. Or, oh, I can hit that rut. Oh, I can, or that route. Oh, I'm stuck in a rut and want to bounce out. Whatever I needed to do, the bikes all responded. Now I had to adjust how I did it in each bike, but each bike could do it, you know? And so switching between it was pretty fun because it allowed me to, you know, kind of exercise that part of your brain where you really have to adapt and go, okay, I can do this. Oh, how do I do this? I do it this way. Oh, this works on this bike, but not on this, but this, but they all do it eventually, you know, essentially they all do, they all accomplish the goal, but they accomplish it in a different way. And it's up to you to pick the bike that best suits you to accomplish to get to where you want to get but, right, right but there's a there's a way for everybody to get there they just have to make sure they pick the right bike you know if somebody gets the 300 and, and complains that it doesn't rev fast enough well they should have gotten the you know the 150 and if they get the 150 and say well who's heavy torque well you should have bought the 300 and if you say well i'm racing and these bikes don't they're not quite as fast we well, should have bought the 250 or the 450 you know right so right. so you have you have these options and that's that's one of the that's one of the great things about ktm is they have all these different models i mean on one hand it's confusing and i feel bad for their dealers in a way because it's got to be hard to you know talk to a a a less knowledgeable buyer about which and because they have all the bikes or letters exc excfw (laughs) yeah all the it's all alphabet soup and they have the new xwfs and so and then they have the sxfs and it just goes on and on and so for a dealer it, it keep, it's probably a challenge for a rider who's not that knowledgeable on the other hand most ktm buyers are probably more experienced people who understand what they want and just need maybe a little you know what i'm like what i'm giving that little like oh yeah well you know make sure you know who you are and you're honest about who you are and how you ride and and then you can buy the right bike and uh you know, it's always laugh when people get online and they go ah that bike sucks and it's like well it's just not the right bike for you you know they didn't build that bike for you they built this other bike for you it doesn't make right. that bike sucks it just means it's not your bike you know it's like if you listen to country music and somebody makes a heavy metal album you go well that album sucks it's like well but if you like heavy metal that album's great <laughs> you know stuff right. so, don't don't worry about it don't get mad that they made a record that you don't like you know it's just it's just for somebody else not for you sorry not right. every bike is for you <laughs> hopefully your insight will help people uh decide what is the right bike for them so yeah uh, and and, and, in, and in, a, in a more general sense it's not just these bikes but all bikes you know sure. you, when you're buying a motorcycle be honest about who you are what you want and you'll you're you're going to be a lot happier with, every time you slink, throw your leg over that bike and go riding absolutely absolutely well as always don thank you very much i appreciate your insight and uh 
hopefully it will help people uh, with their buying decisions. Okay, thanks. <laughs> bye. All right, thanks, bye. In our second segment, TJ Adams chats with a couple of adventure-seeking Aussies. Stu and Janelle and their three dogs have been riding all over the world for the last 10 years and 108 countries visited aboard their two BMW 650 GS Adventure motorcycles. Calling themselves the Pack Track, their adventures are chronicled on their blog, TJ gets the lowdown on some of their experiences, <laughs> good and bad, and the challenge of crossing borders with canines along for the ride. Actually, they will be touring the USA from June to October of this year, starting in Sacramento, California, before they make their way across the northeast part of the US and then finishing back in Dallas, Texas, where they first started. On the tour, they will be giving free presentations at a number of motorcycle dealerships. So check out their schedule and hopefully you can get along to meet them in person. The Yamaha name stands for a heritage of motorcycle performance and classic styling. Visit your dealer to find the 2023 Yamaha Sport Heritage bike for you like the XSR 900, where timeless design meets the sheer power of a CP3 power plant. Or the XSR 700, built to be customized with modern classic looks and cross-plane concept twin performance. For all things Yamaha Sport Heritage, visit yamahamotorsports.com or see for yourself at your local dealer today. How long have you been doing this epic journey around the world? So we left Australia in February 2014. We flew from Sydney to Dallas. We bought our motorcycles there and then we headed off on what we thought was going to be a two-year trip around the world. But we ended up spending two years just in North and South America Really, to see everything and enjoy it, we needed a slower pace. Nine years later, we're still going, but partly because of COVID. COVID prevented us from moving for a few years. We still were able to do some traveling, but yeah, we couldn't kind of progress across continents during that. So, yeah. Wow, nine years. For a moment, I forgot about COVID. So, just yeah. it's a bit like that in a lot of countries now. <laughs> I know once it was gone, it was out of my mind. <laughs> didn't ever think that would happen <laughs> so you're married were you married before you went or did you get married en route yes we were married before we before we left we got married in 2008 so actually 15 years of marriage nearly that's good so you were quite sort of a setup I was just thinking this must be quite a strain on a relationship to be traveling for all these years just living on two motorcycles we we were so so we had five or six years of marriage before we set off, but we were really quite separate for a lot of that. I was uh, in the Navy in Australia and away quite a bit, um, either posted to another city and working away or uh, posted to a ship or deployed. And to be honest, we didn't really know each other as well as we thought we did until we started traveling. And the first six months in particular were uh, tricky on the relationship. I always say if you can get through the first month, then you're pro pro probably pretty good to go. But uh, but definitely for six months, it was quite tricky. But we got through it. 
and we found each other and yeah I think it's really allowed our relationship to to build like it never would have done before. First of all who decided did you just both suddenly have this idea to travel and go off for a few years or was there a natural break in careers or something? No I don't think there's any natural time to make something like this happen you just kind of have to because you, you are going to be giving up a lot especially you know if, you, if you're in a career but we had talked about travel from our very first date it was something we both wanted to do uh Stu was probably guiding me down the line of going away for long period which is something I would not have thought of I was just thinking I'd go traveling in my my, my annual holidays but he kind of suggested the idea of backpacking for a few months and that was early on in our relationship but that that plan kind of grew when we we sort of couldn't agree on which part of the world to go for six months because we we both wanted to go to different areas like well you know it costs so much money to get out of Australia why don't we just plan we'll save as much money as we can and we'll plan to just get a one-way ticket out and then just try to see as much as we can in like yeah in a, in a two-year period that did grow it started off probably about a year and it grew to about two years yeah we'll, we'll try and, and see as much as we can and and <laughs> see how that goes and then we'll then we'll get our ticket home you know when we've had enough or we run out of money <laughs> i will just add that i had a obligation with the navy that lasted for 11 years i had to pay back after for my training and we left, I got out at 12 years. So um, so we were going to get out a little bit sooner, but I did extend it out to 12 years. So there was kind of a gap in now in, well, there was an opportunity before that there wasn't the opportunity. So that was kind of a catalyst for us to, to go and do the travels. Right. I just wondered because I think, and I'm not sure, I don't have evidence. It's just from speaking with people that for most people who have an urge to live your sort of lifestyle, I think the main mental block is their jobs. Well, I've moved around the world quite a bit. It is challenging, but you can stay in touch so easily with family and friends. It seems to be the letting go of the career, feeling you have to do this set route, this lifelong thing of working the whole time. <laughs> I know you have to earn money, but it, it is a challenge. And I think that's what puts most people off. I mean, I'm presuming here that you're enjoying yourselves and you would recommend this sort of adventure yeah yeah i think that the career aspect i think we're probably in quite a, a, a fortunate position that our jobs were we well when we said we were going away for two years both of our employers were quite happy for us to be coming back so we knew we had something to go back to in the short term my next question is how did you decide which motorcycles to purchase how did that go you 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 turned up in america and uh had to buy motorcycles so what was the plan and did you do what you were hoping to do i got into cruises pretty quickly when i started riding I, I was drawn to them because well they look nice and their seat height is quite low because i'm not very tall so i got into cruises and we actually bought harley davidson's in australia the sportster the 883 and we bought them with the intention of taking them on this trip around the world but riding them around Australia, we decided we'd, we'd get rid of our car and we'd just commit to being on the bikes to, to get used to the idea of what, what it might be like. I realised very quickly that they're, um, it's not that you can't do it on those bikes, but they are very low. You know, you go over a speed bump and, and in Australia, you're scraping the bottom of your bike. So 
uh, we went to a motorcycle expo in Sydney to check out different bikes to see what else was out there. And we went to a Horizons Unlimited event to go and meet people who were doing this kind of thing. And we sort of realised that maybe an adventure bike would be better. But again, I was concerned about the seat height. So Stu did some research and realised that the 650 GS has one of the lowest seat heights. And <laughs> I remember the first time I saw one, I still thought, oh my goodness, that's really tall. But it has worked out to be a really good bike. It's got mod cons, so it's safe, but it's uh, simple enough that we can do a lot of the mechanics ourselves, which is something we've learned to do over the years. We decided we wanted to have the same bikes so that we only really had to learn how to fix one bike and not... Yeah, not have to worry about carrying parts for two different bikes. When something goes wrong and we're, we're troubleshooting, we can take a part from one bike and stick it into the other bike and see, you know, is that the problem? Excellent. I like your thinking. So these are the BMW 650GSs. Yes. And you didn't find that too tall? I mean, I know they look intimidating to me. Yeah. Um, they just have that look. <laughs> it's funny, no, now I don't think so. And when we see the 1200s or oh, we see some, you know, the Husky 701s, those sort of bikes, I think, oh, my goodness, they're really tall. My bike's nothing. Uh, we did lower the suspension a bit. We got aftermarket Touratech suspension for both the bikes right at the start of the trip. You can sort of adjust that. Probably it was more of a challenge for Stu because he's so much taller than me. We ended up putting some padding in his seat to raise it a couple of inches so it was a bit more comfortable for him. Right. How funny, the opposite situation. So you've had these same BM, you bought these uh, new or secondhand? Or... Secondhand, yes. Right. And you've had these for the whole nine years? Whole nine years, yes. That is just, that's uh, fantastic news for BMW. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They've been really, uh, I don't think, I don't think we could have picked a better bike. No, no, we've, really We've happy. been able to get parts all around the world. Uh, sometimes we've put other brands into them until we can, you know, just to get by as kind of a Band-Aid fix until we can, we can get original parts. But they've really been a great bike for this trip. That is a fantastic advert for BMW. I must say I'm impressed. And how about dealership service? Did you manage to get to sort of specialists? And is there quite a good network for that sort of thing? There is. There's uh, often you'll find a BMW specialist uh, in maybe not in the country you're in, but um, in surrounding countries or somewhere. So you can plan things. You you know, if you're going through Central America and you need a service in Costa Rica, for example, there's a, a guy who's well known for BMW repairs. We haven't really gone to the the dealerships because well we've been able to find specialists that are, that do BMW work outside of the dealerships. So um, yeah. Well, the the other thing about dealerships is they're they're often in big cities, and yeah. your bike never has a problem in a big city. It's always in the middle of nowhere. And you've been to some pretty obscure places as well, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we have. Like um, last year, we were riding across Mongolia. And we're probably about a third of the way across. And we were actually really lucky uh, when this happened. We'd seen these really big birds on the side of the road. So we sort of, Stu pulled off. He got the Insta360 going. He wanted to try and record them. So off he went onto the band and the, and the dirt. And all of a sudden, his rear suspension just broke. It just, the back of his bike just dropped that could have happened a few seconds later on the highway going at 
at 80 k's an hour, but he was just really lucky. But there's his bike. You know, you can't move it. They're so heavy. We were trying to flag down somebody who could put the bike on a truck maybe and get it to a nearby town because this is the middle of nowhere. But these two lovely guys, they pulled up in their, their little car. They came over. They had a look. They lay his, we got all the stuff off the bike, lay his bike on the side, pulled out the suspension parts, and then Stu hopped in the car. They drove about three hours. Yeah, well, I thought I was just going to the nearest town to find someone to do some welding. And uh, about an hour and a half later, and this is them going at about 160 kilometres an hour, they were flying down the road. Uh, we got to their house. Um, they... They were living in a yurt, uh, very, very traditional Mongolians. Oh, those sort of round, yeah, round build, little buildings. Yeah, little tent things, um, all canvas side, yeah. And they, um, they, I went in there, uh, they gave me some food and just had me sit down and, um, and had some... Oh, the yak milk. Yeah, yak milk. Um, oh, uh, an unexpected surprise. <laughs> And then, um, and then they went out. It was it was dark by now, and they're they're uh, welding up uh, in their backyard uh, a, a replacement piece for the suspension. And took a couple of hours and them welding and hammering. And and then uh, we all jumped in the car and off we went. And uh, I said, look, if, like they were heading to their home. I said, if you this is great, thanks so much. If you just uh, point me in the direction of a truck driver, I'll I'll hitchhike back. But they wouldn't have it. They drove out there back to the um, the bike, back to Janelle, uh, who's left alone in the dark in the desert. <laughs> Good grief. That was supremely helpful of them. What was the yak milk like? Did you like it? It was interesting. It was the fermented, yeah, fizzy milk. So it's... Uh, it was... Isn't it amazing how, how, well, it's just good to try different things, but... Yeah, yeah. It was it was just unusual. I I, I think I'd like to try it again, but, uh, yeah, I was kind of... Because I, I, we couldn't <laughs> communicate, I was just shocked when it went into my mouth and... But, but just that, sorry, back to your original question. Like in South Africa, uh, there are quite a few BMW dealers and... By the time we got down there, our bikes needed a bit of work and I just had actually blown my head gasket in, in Angola and I was getting my bike down to South Africa. There was actually a BMW mechanic who didn't work for BMW. He had his own setup at his place, but he was a BMW mechanic. He gave up a whole week uh, in his schedule to, to work on my bike and also to do some work on Stu's bike. It must have really bugged it, it a whole week. Yeah, it was, it was not good. Yeah, it was not good. <laughs> we, we learned a lot from him. He got us involved with stripping the bike back and, and really taught us. Stu was already fairly mechanical. He'd worked on cars, his own cars back in Australia, but Martin really taught us a lot about our bikes and things to look out for and just stripping them right back to the frame, really seeing where everything was. But he was affiliated with a sort of affiliated with a dealership who gave us great discount on parts. So we did utilize BMW in South Africa. And, and then at the end of that, our bikes were running so well again. It had been quite a few years since they'd had that level of, of TLC. In Canada, we had uh, an issue with one of the bikes and we went into a dealership there and they had a, um, a tools down policy for travelers they would drop everything if a traveler came through and we were seeing we, our bikes were fixed up the same day so and i believe that is a, a policy for a few of the mechanics we have a few of the dealerships we haven't actually um, experienced any, or we haven't needed it anywhere else but when we did need it that was a really a really great 
policy that they had and they really took care of us. Good to hear. I'm liking this, hearing good things, nice uh, yeah. hum, human nature stories. And good to hear also that you weren't experts on all that sort of thing before you left um, because, you know, that's encouraging. Yeah, YouTube and obviously communications now compared to nine years ago yes. <laughs> have improved and you have lots of groups you can go on and get help on. I know Facebook and Reddit and many forums. So all that sort of thing is useful now, but uh, it's good to hear that, you know, you weren't put off by not sort of overthinking everything. So you left house and home, you left all your furniture and stuff at home. You didn't sort of sell everything up and make this your be all and end all for the... We did sell everything, yeah. We when, when we'd sort of decided five years before we left that we were going to do, we were going to do something, and we needed to save for it. We decided we wouldn't go down the property route. So we just rented. We did move around a fair bit with Stu's job. And every time we just got a smaller and smaller place and we just got used to living with less and it's sort of quite minimalist really. And then just before we left, we sold, we sold everything. My mum has a few boxes in her garage of like some, some more sentimental things like wine glasses and and wedding presents that we got which she's she can't wait to get rid of again because they're taking up space and then she didn't agree to nine years <laughs> but we did yeah we did sell everything we sort of I guess in a way we thought you never know if we if we land somewhere that maybe we'd we'd like to stay and we'd like to then have that option and not be tied to coming back to Australia yeah I think once you get out and about and you're doing this sort of thing because I live quite a nomadic life you you find it quite liberating and you find you have all those choices. How many countries have you been to so far? We've been to 108 now. Good grief. And one of our dogs, Wheaty, she's been to 100 now. So yeah. the last, last, last country she entered, she ticked over to 100 countries. That is amazing. Yeah, let's get on to dog talk. So not only is it you two guys, or by that I mean girl and guy, <laughs> or two, two people on two motorcycles, you've also been heavily involved in rescuing dogs. I mean, you haven't just taken one little pup with you. No. Just talk us briefly through the dogs. You, you started with Skye, that was your doggy in Australia. And did she go overseas with you? Yes. So we pretty much, the, the trip was planned around her at the start. We, uh, we wanted to travel and we had her. Initially, we, we thought we'd just go away for six months, as Jeno had said, so it was, we could leave her with someone for that kind of period. But once it started growing to a year and two years, Janelle wasn't happy with, her, with leaving her. She felt that she'd come back and, and Skyler would be someone else's dog. So, um, so Janelle said, if, we, if you want to do that, that length of travel, then you've got to work out how Skyler can come with us. Did some research and it really wasn't as difficult as I thought. I knew coming back to Australia, we'd have to do 10 days of quarantine, but otherwise it didn't seem like there were quarantine anywhere else that we wanted to go. And that certainly has been the case. We've done 108 countries now without any quarantine at all for our dogs. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. And because I, I think there's a, there really is a perception that you you can't do that. You have your dog in quarantine all the time when you're traveling. And that's certainly what, what we thought before I did the research, but no, it's it's much easier there, and there certainly are countries where you do need to, where you would need to put them into quarantine. Iceland, for example, um, Australia, New Zealand, but it's it's not as common as you would think. And Australia is ten days. Australia is ten days if you've got everything lined up properly. Yes, and if it, it was ten days up until March, 
and they changed the rules, which actually really affected us quite negatively. We, we would be back in Australia this month if uh, the rules hadn't changed. But a change of rules meant that we can't be in Southeast Asia and go to Australia. We have to go to an approved country for six months before we can enter Australia. So that is one of the reasons why we're going to the US and, and doing a, a tour while uh, while we wait for six months out. Oh, I see. Just sort of mouldy your, your trip around that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Skylar, unfortunately, about a month before we had planned to depart Australia, she was diagnosed with lymphoma. It's a very aggressive cancer. Cancer in the lymph system. Yes. Yeah. And the vets, um, they gave her about 30 days to live. But we were in a really fortunate position. We'd saved a lot of money for our travels. And we could uh, we could throw money at this, so we decided to do the chemotherapy, which was fairly straightforward, but also a bone marrow transplant. And she was one of the first dogs in Australia to actually undergo a bone marrow transplant. It was a new treatment for dogs. It was it, rough. It was really it was. It was, rough. It, was a, it was tough for her, but uh, but she came through. She went into remission quite early on and was fit and healthy by the time we were ready to fly. And the vets gave her her health certificate for flying and, and yeah, she looked great. And then probably two months later when we were we entered into Mexico, the lumps came back, the, the glands were inflamed again and we knew exactly what it was. We were able to go to vets and get, uh, or pharmacies and get chemotherapy drugs and continue the chemotherapy while we traveled. And we got another six months of traveling with her which were some of the the best six months we had with her because we were with her all the time so sounds like yeah you gave her the best the best time you could and is that why you called your your travels the pack track because you had your doggy with you and of course you know they're pack animals aren't they they don't like to be left behind <laughs> yeah it's not it's not your typical motorcycle when you see our uh, motorcycle traveling logo or anything typical motorcycle <laughs> we managed to squeeze like some line markings onto our logo, but it's it's very dog related. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love to hear that. That's fantastic. And then during your travels, you've gone on to to pick up more dogs on board. Yeah. So uh, when Skylar passed away, that was really hard. We were in Venezuela at the time, really broken hearted. I I just wanted to go home. I kind of the whole thing just felt like a big failure. But Stu said, "Look, let's just." let's just take some time. We'd been moving pretty quickly up to that point. Um, he said, let's just take some time in Venezuela. We'll go, we'll do some hiking and, and then see how you feel in a few weeks. If you still want to go home, we'll go home. If you think maybe you want to try some more countries, then, then we'll do that. So that's exactly what we did. But the vet who had been treating Skylar in her last few weeks, she had a dog that she had used to give our dog a blood transfusion just to try and help her to feel a little better towards the end. And after our three or four weeks of touring around Venezuela, we popped back in to see that vet before we were leaving to go to Brazil. And we had absolutely no intention of adopting another dog for a while. Like the idea of having another dog with us just, yeah, it was actually pretty ups. I couldn't, I couldn't think about it. But when we went in to see the dog and she's a lovely dog she was wheaty and the vet said would you like to adopt her and we saw it was it was a difficult life for her where she was she's she's sort of disabled she'd been hit by a car 
So her back legs are not very good. The vet was looking for someone specific to adopt her because she couldn't, you know, she, she needs a little bit more attention, she needs a bit of care. And really what she needed was two wheels to get around. So we said yes. And it was hard for the first, I found it really hard for the first few weeks seeing another dog that I didn't know where Skylar was meant to be. But she was actually, she was perfect. She was exactly what we needed. Um, she was a lovely little dog. So we were, we were really happy with her. Uh, no intention of adopting any more dogs. But then Sky, uh, Shadow, sorry, Shadow popped up in Colombia uh, after we toured South America. She'd run across, run onto the road and Stu saw a car run over her. But she's so small that she survived, but she lost, uh, she lost an eye. Oh, oh my goodness. Yeah, but she's tiny. She's only 4.3 kilos. She's uh, like a miniature pincher. He'd seen a car, a car drive over her and we always, we always check. So he pulled over and went back to see if she was dead or, or what. And she was alive. So long story short, uh, we got her to, oh yeah, off to the vets again. Uh, I had to be removed. We asked if they could, you know, rehome her or what they could do for her and uh, it wasn't looking good. So we said, okay, we'll adopt her <laughs> to have, she's only, she's only little, it can't can't be that much harder to have two dogs and they they actually they travel really well together because she's so small and our carrier was designed for Skylar who's who was quite a bit bigger she was 23 kilos and Wheaty's only 12 and a half kilos and Shadow's 4.3 kilos so there was there was definitely room for Shadow to join our pack and that was us for about seven years just the four of us until we went through Turkey in December 2021 and that's when Azra ran across the highway she was tiny she could only have been five or six weeks old uh, she ran across the highway in Turkey in the middle of nowhere I pulled over she just kind of stopped in the gutter so I, I picked her up again long story short we got her to a vet again to try and get see if she could get to a rescue center or whatever but she had parvovirus which is which is really bad for, for puppies. It, it can kill them within a few days. <laughs> the vet said that it was high risk to have her in his clinic um, with that condition. If we would adopt her, then he would do the treatment. It's 11 days, four or five injections a day. It's rough. Uh, if they're going to pull through, you know, by day four or day five. And uh, she did pull through. So yeah, so she joined she joined our pack and we did think, well, we're at the end of our trip. We didn't really know how big she was going to be. That was our main concern. She had big feet, but she still has big feet, but she's got little legs and she eat, she didn't even turn out as big as Weedy. She's about 10 kilos. She's actually a perfect size. She's a really good size to go on a bike. <laughs> <laughs> With three other dogs. So you've got two each on the back of your bikes. This is incredible. You just sort of treat them on the road, cut their nails and keep a first aid kit and sort of stuff like that, just, just as you go. Yeah, we've got we've got a first aid kit for them. I carry a course of antibiotics. Um, and toothbrush. I've, I've been trying to get into <laughs> brushing their teeth. Um, it's a lot easier with Azra because I've been doing it since she was little, but they all think they're in trouble when the toothbrush comes out. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. But it, but it is important, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the actual riding, it must be difficult, but 
was there or has there been a favorite place have you been back to somewhere you particularly liked or are you going to go back we really enjoyed mexico i don't know if it was just because it was our first country but we did go back we did we went through mexico in about three weeks uh, at the start of our trip and we had a a big impact on us after south america we flew back from colombia to florida and toured around the us and canada and we made sure to visit back into mexico because we had really enjoyed it uh turkey more recently it was that yeah we were so surprised at how much we enjoyed turkey and how pet friendly it was how much they really love their dogs it's yeah it's really lovely to see the dogs are in in the shopping centers they just wander in and people just walk around them as if it's completely normal and people are driving around with bags of dog food and um, dropping <laughs> them on the road the street dogs because uh, the street dogs are everywhere and they're in they're in packs they're really large they, in fact they're huge dogs in in large packs uh, but they're they're not aggressive at all they're really gentle how nice how different isn't it amazing yeah every country is so different it's always surprised us that you go from from one country, you cross the border into the next, and things are different. You know, it's it's really amazing. And were you purposely taking smaller roads, side roads, or were you sort of just trying to get from country to country and going on on the fastest roads possible? No, we actually tend we try to avoid motorways as much as possible. There are times we have to just get on a motorway and get somewhere for, for various reasons, but we really try to to get on the back roads because we don't travel very fast. With the dogs, traveling at about 80 kilometers an hour is really comfortable. You don't want to be on the motorways where people are going 110 plus. It's it's not it's not pleasant for us at all. Right. We're we're in old school here, so we're probably talking about 50 or 60 miles an hour. 50 miles an hour. Yeah, 50 yeah. miles an hour. That's right. That's that's what we like to travel. And also, if you take the back roads, then you get onto the quiet borders for a lot of countries. If you're on the main main highway, you get to the big, busy border crossings, and they're really unpleasant. And you just get to the you get to the borders, and you just wait to get across. I mean, you you can't sort of be planning ahead the whole time because we normally push to the front with the bikes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> just assume that lane splitting is allowed everywhere. Yeah. But normally just wave us through that you know truck drivers they can be part honestly some of the queues in some countries is unbelievable going from turkey into iraq we clocked about 16 kilometers of trucks two lanes queued waiting to get from turkey into iraq that was insane but the truck drivers they just wave us through they'd even tell us how to get around certain bits if it was sort of blocked wow that's good to hear I mean, how far do you think ahead? Sort of, if you have to get across water, etc., are you booking ahead for ferries and you know packing your bikes? How does all that work? Yeah, I mean, so in Europe, where we were taking, we did take quite a lot of ferries um, through the Mediterranean and Baltic. We we had to book those ahead because we always want to have the dogs with us. So we want to book pet friendly cabins where they can come into the the cabin with us because it's usually on a ferry if they are do allow dogs. They have a kennel area or they have a few pet friendly cabins so but you need to book early to get those generally so we don't want to have them in the kennel we have had them in the kennel if it's necessary they've had to go through a little bit of discomfort yeah being separated and not knowing what's going on yeah but generally we keep that to an absolute minimum luckily they always have each other so that's that's nice for them but um 
but yeah, we, we're always trying to book our ferries in advance so that we can have yeah, that pet friendly cabin, which is hard to get. So, but but doing shipping between the continents that's mostly that's been fairly last minute to get to the US. Normally, we'd be able to get an Esther as Australians, uh, but because we've been to Sudan and Iraq, we have to get a visa. And we really didn't know if we were getting we were going to get the visa or not. So we didn't make any plans. Uh, the visa came through, and then you know suddenly now we've got to figure out the shipping fairly last minute. You can usually do it in three to four weeks. Figure out shipping and and book flights and and things. But the longest that we planned ahead was getting from North America to Europe because we wanted to take the Queen Mary 2 cruise line. You're thinking big, aren't you? <laughs> Price-wise, it was pretty comparable for us. So two people, two dogs, we couldn't take the bikes on the ship. But for two people and two bikes, uh, two people and two dogs, sorry, to get from New York to the UK, flying versus the ship I think it was a couple of hundred dollars more for us to take the ship and we got seven nights of this luxury cruise line with our girls on board they were in a kennel but it was really nice it wasn't like the ferry kennels this was um this was very classy well looked up they were very well looked after you even got to pick your own food you could tell them exactly the brand you wanted and they'd get it for you but we had to book that about 12 months ahead to make sure that our girls got on because there are only, at that time, there were only 10 or 12 kennels on board. I believe they've renovated it since and increased the capacity. That sounds well worth it, though. That's just a, a complete experience on its own. Exactly. I mean, we're, we're adventure riders and we love to ride, but we do like to look for other things. Like when we'd been down, we'd been down South America to Ushuaia and we went down through Argentina. And so we were going to go up the other side through Chile, but we found out that there was a ferry that took you probably a third of the way up the coast of Chile. You're like, oh, that would be really interesting because we're either going to be doing lots more gravel roads or we could, I mean, there's, there's lots of gravel roads in Chile. So we didn't feel like we were missing out or we could take this boat that goes through the fjords and just kind of really see the fjords because when you're riding on gravel roads i find I'm, I'm concentrating so much on the road i'm not so much looking around it at what's going on so yeah so we took that option and that was really fun uh we've taken trains we took the trans-siberian train with the girls that was amazing and so when you put your bikes on these different transportations they have all the gear for strapping them on and keeping them safe you don't have to take all of that with you we do have it with us just in case but uh yeah they they they're experts at this. We generally leave them to to strap the bikes down and yeah, take care of it. We've never had a problem at all. I mean, we have heard of other people having issues with their bikes, and we definitely check everything. But having seamanship background, I I know when they're experts, and I, I let them do their thing and get out of the way. I'm a sailor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, we, I, we we do carry straps just in case. And sometimes on those short ferries where just, just a, a roll-on ferry and more a river crossing, it's more for stability. We uh, Our bikes are a little bit top-heavy. Yeah. Yeah. We can strap them if we want to. Um, we kind of, we have done that for those shorter ferry rides, but not very often. And, and probably it's not actually necessary. But you've got to be extra safe. Everything you've got there is everything you need. It's not like you're just on a little holiday and you know you can sort it out in a week's time you're living with all your gear yeah that's true yeah, yeah absolutely important. 
So what's the biggest disaster you would say you had? I mean, you're bound to have had some, I'm just assuming. (laughs) Did you have lots of punctures? Did you have any punctures? That's what happens to me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. In in the first two years, uh, so in the Americas, I think it was 19 flats we had by the end. So we did have an issue. We had a a, um, defective tyre that had some of the uh, metal from inside the strands of reinforced metal. There was a strand coming through and kept puncturing the inner tube before we we just we couldn't work out why we were getting a flat that probably but that was really probably only three or four of the, the punches other ones were us not changing our tires when they probably should have been using them when they were when yeah they're much bolder than they then we should have we should change the we should have changed the tires i guess it sounds like a huge amount but i guess overall um considering that you know you've been on the road for so many years that's not actually a bad ratio no no uh, since then we've learned a lot from from that and we haven't had the number of punches in the following years so you, your suspension gave up the ghost and what else has happened let's hear the bad news before we go on to more good news <laughs> in where were we the in namibia no sorry angola we had a, a janelle's overheat lamp came on as we were just doing some day riding and we uh, I think we were just we were exhausted we we a lot had happened coming down through West Africa and um just we just didn't want to have a problem so when we had one we kind of just we thought oh, it's probably just a faulty sensor which is a really really silly thing to to, to even think about we, we I'm sure you're not the only ones who decide it's just a, just a wire a wiring fault or something <laughs> on the lamp we pushed on and we got uh, and we got back to a hotel next morning rode off and it came on again and it shouted out i really am overheating yeah i think at that point we decided right let's turn around and head back but we didn't get very far and janelle checked the oil and it was all milky so the head gasket had gone and in angola it's very very difficult especially at the time i'm not sure what the situation is now but they had a uh, financial crisis, um, the uh, hyperinflation, and getting things from outside into the country was extremely difficult. We were really worried about what, how we were going to be able to repair this, how we were going to be able to get the parts. But we contacted about six months earlier. We'd been in Portugal and we gave a presentation to the Portuguese club at their annual um, Christmas party, and a lot of the the guys, uh, they knew what we were doing next, going to Africa, and they came and, and spoke to us, said, if you have any problems in Angola and... Because um, it's an, ex, an ex-Portuguese colony. Yeah, all the ex-Portuguese colonies, they all had contacts down there. So they said, if you have these problems, uh, let us know. So we're actually, we were a little bit in the middle of nowhere by the time we had this problem. But we had a SIM card in our, a local SIM card in our phone. So we we're able, able to get internet. So we messaged the guys in Portugal, a couple of them. And before we knew it, there was a pickup truck out by our side. And we we're loading the Janelle's bike onto that. And off it went to a um, to someone's house. And uh, he had a mechanic that worked for him. He had a few bikes and vehicles so for his business. So he, uh, he had someone just drop everything and fix Janelle's bike. And they shaved the, the head down, but they, they did it with sandpaper. It was good enough. And the, the gasket they used was a, um, a used gasket that he saw somewhere, but it, it, got us, it got us going. And we actually got 2000 kilometers. We got into Namibia and continued the trip. In Namibia, it went again. 
But from there, we were lucky. We can truck the bike into South Africa, no problem. We can get proper the head properly shaved. And There is definitely a theme, though. When things go wrong, it's because we've been neglecting the bikes a bit. Every time we've had but we've had a few chains break and get all wound up around near the swing arm and it's because we knew the chain needed replacing but we were just pushing it a little bit further tires a lot of the times with tires we're really pushing them and then you know when you you're uh, overtaking on the on the inside where you probably shouldn't be but just to get around traffic there's a lot of glass and nails and things so the tires go easily so there's definitely a, a theme in um in Ethiopia water pump it's it's kind it's not really a common problem but it, but it does happen on this model the water pump uh down the bottom there's a, a hole a little hole where you can have oil or coolant leak through if one of the seals goes well this happened in Ethiopia and our solution was to plug up the hole <laughs> pretend like a la 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 that's not happening so then of course we had problems when we got into Sudan and that and that is also not an easy place to get parts, but we were just, again, really lucky. We found someone who could machine the parts for us and we could put it back together and go on our merry way. <laughs> it's because you're Australian. I can imagine you're just going, she'll be all right. <laughs> just... No, not really. <laughs> we are getting better, I will say. Yeah, we, we definitely are getting better at, at, at problems that we've had in the past, like tyre problems. We haven't had so many since. Uh, since the Americas and the problems that we have had, they really haven't been our fault. Um, chains and sprockets—they were our fault. They—they uh, we're not. Yeah, but we're—but we're not having the number of problems. We're changing those out more regularly when they need to be changed. And the water pump, well. Yeah. Now we just like we just get new problems, things that we yeah. hadn't discovered before. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. So the fact that you're actually living on your machines with several animals didn't make you extra responsible. <laughs> <laughs> just extra hopeful <laughs> yeah that's like like I said at the start they're you know they're modern enough that they've got all the safety aspects that you want on a bike if you're touring but but simple enough that you really you can pull them apart and can figure things out and we do punish them we really do yeah um, really they, they, they go we do um have a regular maintenance period but sometimes we'll go over by as much as five thousand kilometers if we uh, yeah, nearly double the period between what we what we want to, but we, we try we try and do it every five thousand kilometers. So we try to do it fairly regularly. But if it extends out to ten thousand, I mean, they just keep going. They are I, I really uh, couldn't be more impressed with the bike than we are with these bikes. I think you're you're making the bike sound really good to me because it sounds like you were able to work things out. They were you know they were sort of straightforward enough for you to actually work out how to deal with things I mean they sound awesome so when when we were planning this trip I said to Stu because we'd, we'd watched um the long way down and the long way round, and I you know I sort of I know they dramatize it a bit but but I said to Stu there is we're going to go around the world on sealed roads I am not doing off-road riding I'd never done it before the idea scared me but you realize very quickly that some of the coolest places to go and see are off-road and it was learning on on the go but now now I really quite enjoy occasionally we go looking for a little bit of a challenge if we haven't done it in a while just you know and to keep our skills up a bit yeah I'm I'm impressed I have to say and did you take them off-road did you plan to go off-road or did you accidentally take off-road routes or routes at times we've done some pretty good roads actually the Pamir Highway in Tajikistan is probably 
one of the highlights and certainly from last year. I mean, a lot of it actually, it's an old Soviet highway that just hasn't had any maintenance. Well, on top of that, they had a war in the 90s and they just destroyed the road to stop the movement of, of trucks from the opposition. But, and they ha just haven't repaired it since. So a lot of it is, is tarmac that's got a lot of potholes, which I think is a lot worse than just a, an off-road um, track. But really you want to go around the potholes. So you're just, you're, you're dodging them all the time. But then there's also, when, when you get into the mountains, there's just corrugated roads, a lot of that. And it's it's spectacular. The scenery up there, uh, we saw a wolf up there. Yeah, yeah that, amazing. that was amazing. There's a, a really long fence right on the Chinese border. Luckily, this wolf was on the Chinese side of the, the fence and there's no way he's getting around it. But yeah, it was a lone wolf. That was a very cool moment for us. You certainly, we've never let it put us off. We've always, we if there is a, a an off-road road and we want to get somewhere, then we we just take it. But yeah, more recently, as Juno said, we have actually gone looking for, especially in Southeast Asia, because everything is, especially in Thailand, everything's sealed. You can get anywhere you want on a sealed road. Um, so we've wanted to go and do a few challenging bits the last few months, and we've had to go looking for those. Yeah, I should have let people listening know, hey, folks, you are actually in Thailand now. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, that's right. We are. <laughs> yeah. And it's very beautiful there, isn't it? I mean, do you find that that's got lots of, I don't know which areas you're in, but lots of twisties, mountainous canyon type roads? Yeah. So the north of Thailand, there's um, there's a couple of famous routes. One of them is the Mae Hong Son Loop. And that's that is all sealed. And it's just I'm not sure how many twists. It's it's just because it's mountains. It's up and down, and but they've got really good roads. It's very safe. Also in the north of Laos, it's similar kind of geography. So there's a lot of twisty roads in the north of Laos as well. Yeah. Once you get down to to Cambodia and the south of Thailand, it's quite flat. But all along the north is is very mountainous and beautiful. Mm. You must have a lot of stuff with you because you you, you take tents. Don't you? You're not staying in hotels the whole time. This is another aspect of the bikes. We, they're so overloaded and they just keep going. Um, yeah, we have our bikes are, um, uh, we, we carry tools and spares. Um, we didn't really want to be carrying too many spares, but we do get people give us spares. And so we, we hold on to those because as soon as we throw them out, that part will break. We have so much stuff. We have our uh, yeah, tent, sleeping bags. We still have everything that you would normally have. And in fact, we have more than most people carry. And then three dogs. And the dogs. And you must have dog food and... Dog, yes. Yeah, we, we try to carry about, uh, we'll buy a, a three to five kilo bag of dog food um, at a time and, and carry that. Uh, because we have two bikes, there is, and the dogs take up where a top box would go, we have behind us that we can load up with stuff. So I've got this huge green bag that's just full of uh, camping gear and dog clothes and and dog food and all the dog stuff on the back of behind stew we've got a it's probably one of the best things we ever we ever purchased for this trip it's a double uh double seater camping chair it's oz trail and we bought it in australia before we left and we thought we thought it was a little bit ridiculous to take it but it very quickly became the dog's favorite bed and now with three dogs because it's only a two-seater they can all three fit on there, not well. <laughs> I was thinking of you guys using it. That's what we chose. That's what we bought it for. <laughs> we ended up going out and buying those awful little tripod seats for us. So the dogs sit on the lovely camping chair and we've got these uncomfortable 
uh, little tripod seats when we're here. <laughs> and the dogs sleep inside the tents with you? They do, yeah. I think I just feel like it's that's the safest option. When you're in different countries, you don't know what's out there, creepy crawlies and wild animals, so it's it's just better. And they like it. We, yeah, we, all, we all pile pile into the tent. Not like being in the safety of Australia. <laughs> we have a big double <laughs> sleeping bag. We had we've tried two systems. We had the zip together, left and right, single sleeping bag, so that they zip together into one large one. And um, the the volume, once you uh, zip them together, because it's like a square relationship, instead of doubling the volume, you actually quadruple the volume. So if we were to sleep separately and try and get the dogs in with us, there's no way we'd fit them in. But when they're zipped together, we can fit three dogs in there, no problem. There's plenty of space. So they're little, especially when we're camping up in the mountains and it's cold, really cold. we've got these little hot water bottles that, <laughs> that keep us warm. So yeah, so we, we keep each other, we all keep each other warm. Oh, yeah. Now I see why you have the dogs with you. <laughs> wow, how exciting. And when you 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 mentioned just now, Janelle, that obviously the, the area where you would have a top box is taken up by the dogs. So how, how do the dogs actually stay on the back with you? What's the uh, arrangement there? We created this motorcycle dog carrier. It's called the Pillion Pooch. It's shaped like a tent for the aerodynamic effects that a tent has. So it's like a little dome shape. It's super strong. We, we lowered a... Land Rover onto the frame, and it's, so it's it's designed to be strong in case of an accident. If the bike goes over, it's like a roll cage. Oh, so you test it. So you've designed this and tested it yourselves. Yes, we have. That's something we did a few years into the trip. Not at the start. It was what we started with. The shape and the idea was really good, but we've developed it since we've been riding. You know, using it every day and learning. Well, how could we improve it? What does it need to have? So the dogs sitting there, and then at the top. Uh, at the apex there's a fully rotating swivel point and from that to uh, se the securing hardware comes down and again there's clips that are a 360 rotate fully fully rotating so they attach to the dog's harnesses so they can't fall out not collars that's really bad but um they've got these great harnesses made by Pergo that are crash tested designed for cars but it's this, it's the same principle so they're attached so they can't fall out and they can they can look out and, and get their heads out or they can you know dogs like sometimes like to turn around 10 times before they they lie down so that yes yes we we take charlie in the backpack with us and yeah he'll turn right around and be riding backwards and looking at me on the bike behind and then he'll i don't know how he does it he sort of just shifts himself around and yes gets his head into the wind and, and does what he fancies yeah so it's, it's really it's it's really comfortable and when we stop at borders um it's got a cover over it so when we're stopped in some you know most borders take us a few hours and that's usually in the middle of the day we we back it towards yeah towards the sun so they're in the shade and they just go to sleep that's so like their little home and how much weight does does one of those pet pillion carriers take What's the maximum load? Yeah, the carrier is 15 kilos. And what's that in pounds? <laughs> 32, is it? It's a bit over double. It's like a mastiff. <laughs> That's quite a big dog. I mean, my, I had a, I, my, I still do have a statable terror. She's in Australia still, and she's... She's about that weight. Sorry, oh, sorry, sorry. That's, that's the weight the of the carrier. carrier. It can take up to a 30 kilo dog, which yeah, is about 75, 75 70, pounds. Or 70. So 65, 70 pounds. Yeah. That's pretty good. Well, that is good. Yeah. So it was made for Skylar and for Skylar and to have some luggage in there with her, which we never really did because she was she took up the whole capacity. But um, 
but yeah, we designed it around a 30 kilo limit. I guess, you know, you've had, well, I'm not guessing, I know that you've had a vast experience. I mean, this is years. So you've obviously been able to hone in a completely suitable pet carrier. It's great for what we do. You know, it's, it's really, it's ideal for, for, for this kind of trip. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is good news because I think um, a lot of dogs do like to go on motorcycles. I belong to a, a couple of dog groups and um, lots of lady riders that I know, you know, who are now single have their dogs or even their cats. And they like to take them with them. So I'll put a I'll I'll put a link to because um, you sell those now, don't you? The the um, pet pillions. Yeah, that, that's probably what you're living off. <laughs> the income from the so we'll put those in the show notes yeah it's um it's made in it is made in the uk but it does ship anywhere around the world we do have a lot of customers in the us and canada and certainly has been tried and tested yes <laughs> that's that's great <laughs> that's good what's been the kind of most outstanding take from from this whole experience sounds as though you want to carry on you're you're talking about months and months ahead you're you're in thailand now and then you're coming to the states i know you're waiting to get do some time there to get back into australia but do you think that's going to be the end or will you go off again i think that we will we'll always be travelers we'll always want to go um it's going to be quite an effort to get the dogs into australia and we really do want to tour australia it'd be lovely to do six 12 month tour around australia but probably at the moment, especially Weedy and Shadow, uh, the, the dogs we've had for the longest, they are getting they're getting older. They're seeing that they're they're getting grey, and and they we we know that that a time will come where they really will need to retire. So that is that's what we're thinking about at the moment. We're thinking about their their mental health, <laughs> their well being. There'll be a kind of there'll have to be a more restful period for them. Yes. Yes. This, then, this kind of lifestyle is it can be pretty exhausting. Yeah. So I think I, I, we, you know, we always we're always thinking our our ideas are always changing. Um, we could end up in a, a camper van doing a little bit of of touring with them at some point. That'll be a lot more comfortable for them. And just we don't plan any more than a few months ahead, and we're just not used to that. So at the moment, it's still. I mean, going to Australia, a six-month plan to get to Australia is, is huge for us. That's exciting, though. I mean, I, I like that thinking. It sounds as though, you know, you, you've always got new horizons, literally, to look forward to. And I've just, I was just looking at your website then, uh, and I'll put a link also to that in, in the blurb at the end of the show. And I saw you've got a dog blog on there. And so you can go on there and see all the different dogs and the countries they've been to. That's That's great. Yes. Yes, yeah. And I also saw there's a route optimizer. So now I have an idea of how you, I mean, I don't know that you had that from the start, but that looks like a fantastic tool that you've got on the website for, for all over the world of planning where to go. Yeah, that was actually something I was working on before we left and uh, and I didn't get it finished before we started, but I did have it um, probably for the second year that we were on the road. I got it nutted out and finished. And yeah, we, we use it for planning travels through the US, we, we planned a tour with it, but also it's probably more useful for when we're in a city and we're looking to just go to all the different sites, we plug in all the all the, the sites that we want to and just find the shortest route so we can get through all of them as a walk. So they're the two uses that we use it for. Yeah, it looks, looks really good. I'm definitely going to have a play with that a bit later. No, I was just going to say, it's, it's pretty simple to use You because it's, it's linked to Google Maps. So you just you really just put in the places and then it it generates the map for you fairly quickly. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's great because that can be intimidating. I think, you know, when people are thinking of going, for some reason, you know, overseas sounds a bit scary or abroad, depending on the terminology you use. It's kind of one thing to go around your own country, but as soon as you start looking at going over the waters, it can be a bit scary, I think. Is there either one of you that is more outstanding with sort of planning routes and saying, I want to go here or you're both pretty even on that? Stu does the planning. I don't do a lot of research. I'm more of a spontaneous person. So I'm happy to go wherever he wants to go. There's only really been a few places I've been. We're not going. I've I've said we're not going back to Australia until we've been there. And Mongolia was one of those places. So we just and then Stu's just he's always on board because it's always an adventure. And why why were you drawn to going to Mongolia? Because it's so far away and it's so unusual and there really is nothing. There's nowhere else like it on the planet. It's such an interesting country with interesting people. And we did do it. We did it last year. We made it. But you really have such a narrow window to get there with the seasons because it gets very, very cold very quickly. Oh, right. So we made it. We did. We crossed Mongolia, but I would have liked more time. So it's a country that it's going to be one of the first countries I want to go back and explore. I really want to go back to Mongolia. And what were the roads like there? What was the riding like? So they've actually, um, in the last few, I think over COVID, there's, there's sort of three routes across Mongolia. There's a northern route, um, a central route, and a southern route. The Chinese have actually, I think it's the Chinese, have paved the southern route. So now you can go from one end of Mongolia to Ulaanbaatar on a sealed, a brand new sealed road. It's it's incredible. I mean, there's no one on it. It's it's empty. But uh, you do have that option if you need to move quickly. So what we didn't do, which is what I'd like to do, is do one of the other routes where you're really, you go off road and you're really exploring. Yeah. You can pretty much in Mongolia just drive in a straight line in any direction. When you're not in a village, it's just, it's There's just, no fences, there's no buildings, there's nothing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an amazing place. Yeah. That sounds awesome. That sounds so, uh, you know, otherworldly. It does. Yeah. Yeah. So when you come over to um, America, you're coming to the USA in about a month's time, I think you said, or a few months. Yeah. What are you going to be doing here? So we're, we're using up, but we, we need six months to get the dogs ready to go to Australia. So we thought that a good use of that time. We have been around the US. So there's, there are a few things that we didn't see last time that we'd like to see, but we thought the best use of the time would just be to go around to dealerships and do presentations or meet and greets and just try and spread the word about pet travel and how easy it actually is to do and just just share our story about traveling for nine years in 108 countries with dogs and being able to do it so that that just seemed like a really really really... good use of the time and we've been contacting dealerships and um, locking them in for for presentations and yeah and it's something we've done a few of them, I've done quite a few of them over the years, and we really enjoy just getting up and telling our stories. So, um, so yeah, it'll be it'll be fun. It'll be fun for us, and hopefully, fun for everyone who attends. Yes, yeah. Oh, I'd love to go see one of your presentations. It's a really go-ahead sort of idea. So, are you going only to BMW dealerships, or is this a variety of dealerships around the US? We're just trying to lock in BMW dealers, but once we have that route locked in then we're going to see if maybe there's some pet shops that might be interested in having us pop in so people come and can come and talk to us about crossing borders with dogs and 
looking after dogs in other countries, getting dog food and seeing vets. I know, I know a lot of people worry about that kind of thing when they're taking dogs abroad. So we've really got a world of experience traveling in different countries with dogs. So it would be great to, to sort of reach both, uh, both people, the dog people and the motorbike people. So how have the BMW dealerships been receptive to sort of having you pop in and uh, speak to their clientele? Yeah, we've had, we've only, because of the visa issue, we really only started on um, uh, two days ago, started contacting dealers and we've already locked in about 12 dealerships or or they're, they're interested in just, just working out finer details. But it's a little complicated because it's not a huge amount of notice because, you know, like we said, this was, this was never part of our original plan when we came to Southeast Asia and they're pretty busy because it's their summer months. Yeah, so, so far, so good. Uh, we sort of got a route planned through and, and people who can't have us, then we'll, we'll look for maybe some other dealerships around. But Well, I should think you're a, you're a, a really good advert for <laughs> bikes that last. <laughs> I, I should ask what gear you're wearing as well. <laughs> have you got um, favourite motorcycle gear that you've been revving through over the years? We've got um, our pants and my jacket are the same as what we started. We bought them in the US. Yeah, they've had repair. My yeah, our pants have had some repairs over the years, but they're really we really like them. What's yeah. the brand? Olympia. Olympia. Right, that's impressive. Yeah, to last nearly right. We're well, riding most days for yeah, close to nine years. It's impressive. Yeah, you've literally been in the saddle most of that time. Yeah. yeah. My jacket, I would still have. I was devastated. I, I lost it uh, just last, just at the end of last year, while we were shipping the bikes into Thailand. At shipping, one of the shipping companies, I put my jacket down, and we're packing everything, and then walked out without packing it. So um, yeah, I was devastated because it had lasted, and it was gonna, it was gonna finish. It was actually in better shape than the than the pants. I, I don't think I'd done any repairs on the jacket. It's like losing an old friend. It is. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's sad when you've had something that long. <laughs> the helmets, uh, we had a right helmets for the majority of the trip. They're yeah. great, yeah. They're our favourite as well. Um, the padding, they were just they were just after I think seven years. They were they were they were getting really No, I don't want to hear that. That's way too long to be wearing a helmet. Yeah, it is way too long. Yeah. No time out. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like your chains and sprockets, I thought I think you just thought you'd push it pushing it yeah, yeah. We, yeah. We, we knew we had to change them but um we just it's just it's, yeah getting around to doing it when you love something so much you just want it just want it to keep going but it's also being in a position to um to have the time as well to go in and and, and get a new helmet or get it shipped to you and then the money you know after we did push it like they, they were they're expensive helmets but you really get what you pay for our budget had reduced so much that we thought if we if we're getting a helmet that's 20% of the price, is it going to be as good as our? I'd say not. We yeah. wanted to keep those helmets as well. And so we shipped them home. So we had to go, we had to be somewhere else even to ship home. But we've got those, those. We're keeping them. Those worn out Araya helmets. <laughs> They'll go on a shelf. <laughs> yeah, nice souvenirs. I know. I see people do all sorts of things like take the insides out and hang them upside down with plants in or make them into little bird houses and all sorts of things. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Well, um, is there anything else you'd like to um, tell everybody about that I've sort of missed off? Your podcast reaches more than the US audience, but certainly uh, if anyone sees us, it's not hard to miss us. Uh, we've got these 
these what look like tents on the back of our bikes. If you see us riding across the US or Canada, please wave or stop and say hi. You know, it's, it really makes the journey so much more fun meeting people along the way. So yeah, that's that's it really. And how can people find out where you're going to be when you're at these BMW dealerships over here? Are you going to be posting on, on your Facebook or Instagram and that sort of thing? Yes, yeah. We, we've been pretty good about keeping our location fairly live on, on social media, uh, maybe within a few days for the main reason that then people, if, if they want to meet us, then they can. So we'll have a map up uh, once we've pinned down the route and we'll have dates. And so you can just check out our, our Facebook page or our Instagram site and, and, and we'll be posting every day while we're traveling so you can see where we are. That's fantastic. I'd like to try and catch up with you. I'm, I'm here, there and everywhere for a few months, but hopefully I'll coincide with when you're over over here and uh, come and see you at one of the BMW dealerships. I, sh- I would like to mention that we're going to be at the Wayland Wayne weekend. That's in uh, Nelsonville, Ohio, Ohio, uh, 6th to the 10th of September. So if anyone up that way or, or across the country is headed to that event, and it looks it looks amazing, we've never been before, but we'll be there and we're signed up to rides every day and we'll be doing a couple of presentations. So it's another opportunity. Is that an ADV bike event? Is it off-road or is it? It's got both. There's Every day there's, there's a different ride you can do. with. They've got these routes around that area because it, it looks beautiful. It's twisty roads and mountains and national parks. I've signed up to three road rides and Stu signed up to two road rides and an off-road. So it's got, it does have, and it's, and it says, you know, intermediate, beginner, advanced. So you're not, you don't end up on, on a ride that you're not, um, you're not up for doing. You guys just love riding. You're going to ride somewhere so that you can go riding. (laughs) (laughs) That's incredible. Well, thank you so much for sharing everything. I'm going to, I will put lots of notes so that if people haven't caught what you're saying. I'll put links in the show notes and uh, hopefully people get in touch with you and um, be able to glean everything you've learned is is just so useful for for people in different situations. Thank you so much for your time and also for coming along here when it's sort of crack of dawn for you there in Thailand. (laughs) Oh, we we really enjoyed it. Thanks thanks for having us, TJ. This has been fun. Yeah. We'll stay in touch. Yes. Okay. Bye. Bye bye. 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 